Hey everyone, welcome back to this episode of Wild and Unprotected. I'm your host, Koji Samalde, and here's my co-host, Ethan Lehman. Hey Koji, thanks. Can you believe we're on our 10th episode? That's insane. I can't believe it. Well, 10 episodes strong. Let's dive into the intro. Hit it, Defrey and Sean. We actually were joking about setting up an OnlyFins account. Here's to us all swimming through the ship and making more sense of it. Wild and unprotected. Planet Earth, we can't neglect it. Ah, nature's sexy. We need this place, so please respect it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today's guest is Will Goff from the Marine Mammal Research Program of the University of Hawaii. Whew, gosh, I almost butchered that. Uh, welcome to the show, Will. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you do for the Marine Mammal Research Program. We've, we've had um, one of your co-workers before, um, Claire, on the show. So tell us a little bit about what you do. Um, yeah, so I am a, a postdoc, postdoctoral fellow, postdoctoral researcher um, in the MMRP or MRP lab uh, at University of Hawaii. And so my uh, main role is uh, using tags. So the small biologging devices. Biologging means they're these little, uh, basically like a cell phone but a little bit bigger that stores all the data on it, it logs everything on the, the little tag. And so we put these out, they, uh, they attach with suction cups. So we put them out on whales. Um, we can put them out on seals. We can put them on turtles, sharks, pretty much anything. Um, but the, the main focus for us is humpback whales in Hawaii, uh, Alaska, and some other places around the world. Um, so my job and my, my role is sort of, uh, helping train people how to work with this type of data and work with these type of tags to put them out, collect them, and uh, really sort of analyze that data to figure out what humpback whales are doing underwater. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We've actually, uh, we've had someone who works with tags on the show before, um, Dr. Ian Kerr with uh, Ocean Alliance and, and Snotbot. So it's cool to see a different perspective from um, tagging research. Yeah, um, I think they're... Uh, deploying these tags from drones, which is, which is super cool and sort of like new age, you know, next gen technology. Um, we're, we're still using the, the slightly more old school way, uh, which is from a small boat. And we have, I think it's like a 20 foot long pole out on the end of the boat that we deploy it on the whale from there. Uh, so, you know, little bit, little bit different in terms of the methodology for attachment. Um, so like a harpoon. Yeah, it, it, it looks a little bit sketchy sometimes. Um, we try to make sure that there aren't, you know, whale watching boats uh, sitting there with a bunch of tourists who are taking pictures of us as we look like we are stabbing a whale. Yeah, you don't want to be Moby Dick in it. <laughs> exactly exactly everything is permitted so you know it's all above board but yeah it doesn't look look great sometimes 
I could imagine you just have this 20 foot long pole that you're swinging on back, just smacking the shit out of a whale. I can I can imagine that's probably not a great look. Just trying to get those suction cups to work. Yeah. Not the best, <laughs> not the best. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Yeah. I could see, you know, the rise in technology um, with drones and everything going on in, in that space, you know, could you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges that you're facing in your current role uh, when it comes to tagging? And um, of course, there's always that interaction with, you know, tourists and people that are watching. But what are some things that you might face internally um, that people may not know when it comes to this this method of tagging? Um, yeah, so <clears throat> um, like you mentioned, there's there's definitely the sort of external piece that, you know, whale watching boats and, and, you know, people around, it can, it can look a little bit odd if you don't really know what's going on. Um, but just in terms of sort of the methodology, right. We, we need to go out on this small boat, very small boat, like 20, 25 feet. Um, and we need to get close to an animal. You know, the animal needs to be cooperative enough to sort of let us get close. Um, we need to deploy this tag and then we need to, let it stay on the animal and typically they stand for about a day and then they pop off and then the tag is floating and we need to recover it, which means we need to go back out and pick up the tag from wherever it's, it's gotten to. Um, and so in terms of Hawaii, uh, the, uh, the, the weather in Hawaii can be a little bit uncooperative sometimes. So you really need good days and you need to have a good, uh, weather window where you sort of have like the, the lee of the Island, like the, the shadow from the mountains creating this area that you can actually work. And if the tag gets outside of that, then you really need to sort of go and maybe get a bigger boat or find a window where you can go out and collect this. And, and that can get pretty tough sometimes. Um, so it's just sort of the logistics of when you're getting these tags on and back and actually collecting this data can be, can be really challenging. And also just making sure that the animals are actually around, um, so we've been, uh, one of the things we've been trying to do is tag a false killer whale, which, um, for, for people who don't know, they're these, uh, small, they're, they're called, uh, quote unquote blackfish. Uh, they're a dolphin species. Um, that's pretty rare. And what they like to do is sort of bomb around the Hawaiian islands. They'll go from like Island to Island day by day. Is, is that something you can actually say? Can you say bomb around the Hawaiian islands and that'd be okay? <laughs> Ooh. That won't trigger any PTSD, will it? <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Well, they they race around the islands. <laughs> Maybe that's a little bit better. Yes. Um, so they, they race around these islands uh, very fast in these straight lines. And so you basically need to be in the right spot at the right time to even find the animal. And then since the animals keep going, they pop off somewhere wildly different. Um, so that's just when you're sort of in the field. And then you need to collect these tags, bring them back. You need to download all the data off them, which can take quite a bit of time because there's these big uh, video audio files. So you're sort of dealing with, you know, which computers can you use to actually download all this stuff. Um, and then you have to sit there and uh, process through all the data to get it into a workable format that anyone can actually analyze anything and try to find anything out. So, uh, that's, uh, one scenario where I have, um, 
started to uh, drink coffee recently. And I was never a coffee drinker ever. I never liked the taste, never thought it was very fun. Um, and then somehow got through my entire PhD, not drinking coffee, even though it was in a lab where we had a $2,000 espresso maker. And my PI was like convinced that if academia failed, he would open up a coffee shop. So he was like mm-hmm. happy to make us coffee every day. And I still <laughs> was like, Nope, not going to do it. Not my thing. Don't need it. I'm fine. And then at some point about six months ago, I was at a coffee shop and I actually drank a coffee and was really productive for two hours and had the sad realization that I was more productive for those two hours. And so at this point I have, I have gotten on the coffee train, which helps with the data processing, but you know, maybe not so much for my health (laughs) from the coffee standpoint. That's so funny. Coffee seems to be a topic of discussion lately. Uh, Koji and I were actually, we were having a discussion with uh, another podcast guest yesterday about it. And I still have not uh, made the commitment. I know it works for some people, uh, you know, just not for me. I like the smell. It smells like great. Uh, I'll I'll go sit at a Starbucks and and smell it, but that's, that's about it. It doesn't, doesn't do it for me. I know. I think uh, Koji probably has a a different solution or a different uh, workflow for him that gets him through the day when we're going through those slogs of editing. But what about you, Koji? Yeah. I mean, I'm actually drinking coffee right now, but um, (laughs) today's been a crazy day, guys. I started off pretty early, had a Celsius that didn't help. Uh, and then uh, went straight to a sugar-free Red Bull. Also didn't help. Um, and then I found myself in Publix wandering around like uh, like a chicken with no head, like jittery. And I was like, all right, I'll go to Starbucks. <laughs> so I got a coffee. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I ate a big salad uh, to kind of, you know, counterbalance it. Uh, but now I'm finally feeling at that point where I'm focused. And it's taken all day. You know, sometimes it takes it takes that whole day to, you know, really kind of kick in. Um, and that partly is probably cause I'm, I'm dependent on caffeine. I definitely am defen- dependent on caffeine. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have a preference. I like all energy drinks. Um, sometimes I wean off coffee cause I don't like sweaty palms. I don't know about you guys. Oh no, definitely I think, not. I think I drank an energy drink once in college. I tried one. It was like a monster or something like that. And I think I got about halfway through and my, my hands started to shake. And I was like having a mild panic attack and I was like, nope, can't, can't do this anymore. <laughs> and I don't think I've had one since. <laughs> yeah. Those are dangerous. Could you, could you imagine any of the animals that you study on an energy drink? Like what would that do to a pilot whale, especially one that like races around the Island? Could you imagine? Be very jittery, very jittery. Yeah. They just be, they just be going faster. <laughs> Super the, false the killer whales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the humpback calves that we, that we work with are already pretty squirmy and they're like moving around and mom's just sort of sitting there on the bottom and calves like flipping underneath her and trying to get milk and like doing little somersaults and cartwheels and breaching and everything. So you might just, you might just get even more amped up. <laughs> so that's literally like a puppy, a humpback calf. Exactly. 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 Yep. Wow. That's a, that's a great uh, segue into our next um, into our next segment here uh, around conservation and humpback nursing. Um, 
can you kind of talk on your experience more um, when it comes to humpbacks and, and, and nursing humpbacks? Yeah. Um, so we, one of the, the projects that we've been working on recently for the last few years is uh, putting these, these tags on um, humpback moms and calves. So mom calf pairs. So these humpbacks uh, spend maybe two thirds of the year on the feeding ground, which for, for these animals in Alaska um, or the, these animals in Hawaii is the, the feeding ground is up in Alaska. So they're up there for quite a while. And then they come down to Hawaii to breed and to have their calves and sort of wean their calves. So they uh, hang out in, in Hawaii, uh, mainly off of uh, Maui for about three months from January to maybe early April. And so while they're there, they're just kind of hanging out. They're really chill. They're, they're close to shore. They're in sort of the, the lee of the Island that I mentioned that sort of shadow of the mountains, um, which makes them really easy to tag, which is great. And so we've been going out again on this little small boat, you know, finding mom calf pairs and trying to put a tag on both of them and specifically the calves, right? Because we're interested to know what are the calves doing underwater again, right? Like what's, um, sort of the, the, uh, kinematics, which is just like the, the measurements of motion, right? So how often are these whales flipping around and turning and how often are they just remaining stationary? How often are they traveling with mom? Um, because all of those different types of movement are going to have a, an energetic cost associated, right? So these animals are hanging out with mom and they're nursing. So they're gaining milk, right? So they're gaining energy from that, but then they're expending energy. So we really want to know sort of what's the balance of energy for these animals, right? Because that has a, a big impact on the health of the individual and also the health of the population. Um, and so we can look at, you know, how these animals are doing and then potentially compare that to either humpbacks in different locations around the world, say in Australia um, or other species, right? So, you know, what's a, what's the calf of a right whale doing uh, energetically versus the calf of a humpback, right? So uh, we have, I think, I think somewhere between 20 and 30 animals that we've tagged at this point. So we have this, this sort of growing data set. Um, and one of the uh, grad students in the lab, um, Gussie Hollers has been uh, doing a lot of uh, really cool work, sort of starting to process and really analyze that data and get into it. Um, so hopefully in the next few years while she's, you know, working through her PhD, uh, there'll be some, some cool stuff that comes out of there. What do you use that data for? So, like I said, uh, it's mainly, um, energetics, right? So if we, um, you know, get a tag back, right. So it's, it's been stuck on an animal for 12 hours. Um, most of the sensors that are in there are, are similar to ones that are, that are in your phone. So you're going to have accelerometers, which basically determine sort of motion and orientation of the tag. Um, you're going to have what are called gyroscopes, which are going to uh, get you rotation in the different uh, sort of cardinal axes. You're going to get magnetometers, which tell you uh, the orientation relative to Earth's magnetic field. Um, you're going to get uh, depth in the water column. You're going to get... Uh, light temperature, you're going to get video camera. Um, so 
really uh, like 4K resolution video. You're going to get audio from a hydrophone. So you have all these different data streams coming in that are all uh, time synced, right? So the idea is at a particular point in time, you can look and say, ah, okay. So the animal was, um, you know, pitching down 30 degrees and it was rolled 20 degrees to the left. And on the video camera, we can see that there was a fish in front of it. So it looks like maybe it was like rolling to look at this fish or, you know, occasionally the, the calves will um, open their mouth and sort of do like a, almost like a seemingly like a mock lunge, like a engulfment lunge, like, like they're trying to feed, um, but they, they don't really feed in Hawaii. So we're not really sure what they're doing, but they're just kind of like playing around. Um, or you can see when the animal breaches, cause you can see a really big spike in some of the different, um, accelerometer measurements. So bringing all these data streams together, we can start to get a sense for, again, sort of how is the animal moving underwater? How is it moving in relation to mom? If we've tagged both the mom and calf, right? So like who's, who's moving more, we expect it's the calf, but how much, and then how exactly that, uh, quantifies into energy, right? Like if the animal is, is swimming at, you know, two meters per second for 20 minutes in a straight line, how much energy does that actually use? And we can, and we can quantify that. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about was, you know, we, we have a bunch of scientific research out there and I think one of the missing links, um, to kind of the, the mainstream knowledge base of most people is what do we do with that scientific information? Once we've captured it in a data set, we've mapped it out, we've seen, you know, kind of the impact that it may have on the animal. Um, what we do with it kind of from there, are we doing it just to learn? Are we doing it to create programs that can conserve these animals? Um, what are we kind of doing in, in that facet? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's, there's, you know, there's definitely a little piece of it, which is knowledge for knowledge sake type of thing, you know, basic learning about these animals. Um, but depending on the location, so, so in, in Maui, for example, um, there is a lot of whale watching pressure, boat pressure, um, which just means there's a lot of boats around these animals all the time, right? So, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a little buzzing in their ear, you know, probably the majority of the day. So <clears throat> one thing you can do with these tags, and we, um, you know, can, can sort of look through the data set sometimes and, and try to figure it out, especially using the hydrophone is figure out when are their boats nearby and what is the animal's response to those boats. Uh, so there was, there's been some research done in other species and in other locations. Um, and, and some of it more, uh, sort of controlled, they're, they're called like, uh, controlled playback experiments where what'll happen is you'll put a tag on an animal and then you will play a sound near them. A lot of times it's, you know, it's like military sonar or something like that, something really loud um, that they would be experiencing in their environment. You're sort of trying to, trying to get it in that controlled way. And then you can look at how the animal moves after that, right? Is it, is it moving away from the sound source or is it, you know, does it stop feeding or does it, you know, change the depth that it's sort of hanging out at most of the time? This is like um, lurch and pain. If the, right. if the sound is too right. loud. Yeah. Do you, do you actually see like a, like a sort of acute signature, right? Movement signature to when that mm -hmm. sound happens. Um, and it's, it's not always clear, you know, for, for different animals, what, you know, what are those thresholds when the animal is going to react? And, 
are they getting acclimated um, over time? You know, there's, I, I think there's been some research in fin whales showing that uh, the calls that the animal makes, um, if there's a lot of sort of ambient noise in their environment, they might change the, the structure of those calls. You know, they, they might change the frequency or change the pitch range or something like that so that they can sort of get around, you know, some of that noise in their environment and sort of acclimate to it. So how that sort of happens in different species in different locations requires a lot of this data and sort of these bigger data sets to really see what's happening. Okay. Yeah. I think that, that, uh, that paints a, a really good picture of what, what happens with that data and why you guys need to collect it. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, how many devices you actually need to have. It's not just one linear device. That's like, Hey, here's all the data in one little package. You have cameras, microphones, all these things that, that, you know, show at one point in time, an event that has happened. So I can imagine how, uh, how, how much time that takes to process all of that. That's why the coffee's needed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, that, that definitely takes a while. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned before that, you know, all the data streams are time synced. Well, they should all be time synced. Um, but given that these are, um, you know, in, in, in some cases, not handmade, handmade um, but they're like very new technology, um, that is being iterated on, right? So, you know, certain, certain tags, it might be that you put it out once and a whale hits it, right? Like you put it on a mom and the calf might come by and just scratch it or something like that. And all of a sudden you have like a scratch on the lens that you need to like deal with now. Oh, mom, or, you got something on your back. Let me get that for you. Exactly. And we've literally had that happen where one animal will be tagged and another animal, you'll kind of see it come in and like side eye it a little bit and then like try to hit it with a flipper. Like, like the okay. fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, that, that happened with a with a pilot whale last year. Yeah, um, or we had one where the tag popped off, and then the animal sort of turned around, noticed that the tag was there, and then swam up and headbutted the tag, like it was angry that it had just been on it on its back. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know everything should line up, but again, sometimes these tags they go through a lot of wear and tear. So sometimes the data you get back isn't, isn't perfect. Right. And it's sort of different with every deployment. So that's a lot of the processing is sort of going through each individual tag deployment, like a little, you know, individual, individual baby that you have to sort of help nurture and, and, you know, get to the point where you can actually uh, have it in a process form that you can analyze. Yeah. How much does one of these tags cost? Oh, far too much. Um, I think it's ten to twelve thousand for just the tag itself, and then in terms of recovery, we need to have two different transmitters, and so each of those transmitters, I think, is like one to two thousand. So it's on the order of fifteen thousand for one of these guys, and you know, you sort of put it on a whale, and then you hope that you're going to get it back. And we haven't lost that many. We've been pretty good about that, it. that many. <laughs> Well, we've, we've lost a handful. It's <laughs> like losing a handful of used cars. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and, and the, the most heartbreaking is when you put it out and then you just don't hear anything from the tag again ever. And you have no idea what it's doing or where it's oh, gone. It just dies it's like, on the spot. It just, it just, I mean, either it, the animal 
hits it off and it sinks for some reason. They're not supposed to sink. They're supposed to float, but I, or, or it, they break the tag in some way and it's floating wrong. So the antenna aren't out of the water. So we can't hear it or the animal just like, you know, flies 30 miles away and then pops it off there and we can't get to it. Or so there's, there's a lot of ways that the animals can really kind of mess with us and, and uh, make it hard for us to collect this data. So what would you say the success rate is? Our success rate on recovering tags. Ooh, I think our success rate is probably like 97, 98% in terms of recovery in, really in terms good. of number of deployments. I, I think um, if you include the tag deployments that we've done here in Hawaii and up in Alaska, and then if you include all the deployments from my uh, PhD lab, which was uh, at, at Stanford in California, um, I think we probably have somewhere in the order of six to 700 tag deployments with these Damn. tags. Um, and then there's some other projects which have been working on them. Um, you got a good you know, team. It's, it's, it's probably getting close to a thousand tag deployments with these cats tags and all with a big ass stick. uh, The majority. Yeah. Maybe like a few percentage points for drones at this point, but it's mostly with, with the big ass stick. Yeah. We're going to have to call Dr. Kerr. Dr. (laughs) Kerr, can we get some snot bots on loan to Merp? (laughs) That'd be really cool. It'd, it'd be great for humpbacks. It'd be a little bit harder for false killer whales, I think, because the target that you're looking for is like this big and you got to hit it perfectly, um, which I think it might be hard if you're dropping something from a drone, which is mm-hmm. high up in the air and trying to like get it in the mm-hmm. right spot. But humpbacks, that'd be fine. That'd be great. Um, but yeah, we we tend to recover, like I said, the vast, vast, vast majority of these deployments. We've only lost, I think we've lost a few in Hawaii a few in the Antarctic and a few in California. And I think that might be it. That's, that's amazing. The rate of innovation, um, it feels like over the last, I would say 10 years it, in regards to technology is insane. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, uh, these, this, this company that we work with, uh, it's called customized animal tracking solutions, cats. So they're cats tags, which when you're trying to Google search cats tags, looking for, for this device, it never, it, it's always like little tags for cats, right? You know, it's, it's never what you're looking for. I feel like it could also go a lot worse too. Like there's people dressed up as cats. That's true. That's true. You don't get too many of those with a safe search on, but uh, <laughs> that, that could happen as well. Before we get too far into this week's episode, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is you, our listeners. How? Well, now that we're a nonprofit, the donations that we receive go directly towards funding our shows. Want to help or need more information? Visit wildscapeproduction.com backslash donate to support the show. We're so thankful for the support. You make the show exactly what it is. But yeah, so we, we work with this company, Cats, and I think they started development in like 2012, 2013, roughly. Um, so yeah, so it's been it's been about 10 years that we've really been putting these tags out on whales. And Mm. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the first tag that they developed, I mean, it's, it's a little like foam brick with these goofy little suction cups on it. And it maybe had like a few sensors in there. I don't even know if it had a camera at that point. I think they were like developing the camera capability, but I don't think it had a camera. I don't know if it had a hydrophone. Um, So it's just like this, this much more simple, 
um, device mm-hmm. that at this point is uh, is uh, in the Stanford lab at the call it the Hall of Fame, which is just like a shelf in the lab with a little label that says Hall of Fame on it. It's a bunch of like <laughs> tags. The shelf of way fame. Back. Yeah. And it um, that's typically the tag that we use for uh, any sort of outreach with children. When we want to have someone practice tagging something, we'll bring out the big pole and we'll have a buoy and we will take this old broken tag and we'll put it on the end and we'll let kids like pick it up and like whip it at the ground repeatedly. Um, so that's, you know, the, the noble end for the, the first, uh, cat's tag. That's wild. Some kid just beat the shit out of it. Oh, they're, they, they go hard. They're like, all the way up in the air and like bringing it down hard and trying to hit the buoy and missing the buoy. And it's, it's really, it's, it's really cute. Really fun to watch. RIP to history. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, some of the, you know, even the, the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth tags were like very simple. You know, they'll, they'll be whole different things where one will have like a little paddle wheel to try to capture the speed of the animal, or there'll be, you know, different kinds of suction cups and, so they, it took a while to sort of develop the product that we have now. Yeah. Um, and even now they're, they're iterating, like some of the newest tags, they have uh, LED little headlights on them that turn on when the, the light sensor uh, measures that it's really dark. And so the idea there is you can put it on something that's diving really deep and trying to figure out, um, you know, how a pilot whale or a false killer whale, how they feed at depth. And you can potentially, hopefully actually see the prey in front of them. So that's kind of a new thing. Um, so there, that'd be amazing for sperm whales. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't put one on a sperm whale yet, but that would definitely be a, a really cool avenue. And there, there are some sperm whales here in Hawaii. Um, I think they're typically off of Kona off the, the big Island of Hawaii. Um, but I mean, yeah, that would be amazing. There, people have tagged sperm whales, but with different tags, typically they use uh, there's, there's another, sort of the, the other well-known type of tag is called the D tag. It's literally just like D, the letter D tag. Um, and I think those were developed in the early nineties maybe. Um, and the main thing with those tags is the hydrophones. So they're, they're set up to be, you know, everything with the accelerometers and all that type of stuff, but then they have really, really good hydrophones in them to make. So more acoustic based. Exactly. So they're used a lot for, sperm whales, um, different, uh, dolphins and things like that, that use, uh, echolocation to, to hunt. Yeah. That's awesome. So before we move on to our next topic, I actually, um, this, this chat on innovation to me is something I feel like is really cool. Um, what are some, you know, potential innovations that you can see, you know, on the horizon or even that you would want to see? Um, that might impact conservation and scientific research here in the future? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so for, if, if we're just focusing on, uh, you know, whales, right? So the, the idea with whales is that most of the time, since you're having to find them out in the wild in their environment, you can't really control for anything. You can't put them in a tank. Um, I mean, you could, people just get really mad that it would have to be a very big tank <laughs> and it might not, might not go well with, uh, uh, you know, m- marine protected areas or, or, or anything like that. Um, but yeah, if, if you, you know, if you could really only get that one shot, 
at putting a device on this animal, you can typically only do that one device, right? So everything needs to be enclosed in that one uh, tag. And so that, that does limit you in, in a lot of ways, right? You can't, you, you sort of have one perspective on what the animal's doing. You have the perspective of that one tag for that one period of time. So, you know, in terms of innovation, it's really how much can you fit into that tag? And so a lot of the things that I mentioned um, previously were uh, big innovations because of sort of the, the rise of microprocessors and things like that. You can make things really, really small. You can make these inertial sensing, you know, accelerometers and everything really, really small. And so now it's sort of, okay, we can put one tag on that stays in one location, potentially they're suction cups. So they do slip around sometimes, but we can put this one tag on and we can kind of learn what we can from here, but what other sensors do we need? So um, one thing that would be great that, you know, we have in certain tags, but not others, uh, GPS, um, getting really, really good, really accurate GPS when the animal's at the surface. That's wild because you'd think that's like a, a, a must in every tag, especially for recovery. So, so the way that GPS works, um, there are certain tags that do it really well um, and certain ones that, that take a, a little bit longer. And so the, the GPS unit in the, in the cat's tag works sometimes, but it's, it's, it doesn't work every single time. Um, so it's, you know, getting, getting that like really dialed in will, will be huge, um, especially for these tags. And then sort of, you know, more futuristic, if we could get a, you know, we're working with suction cups right now. And like I said, it stays in one spot. Um, if we could get a tag that actually moved around the animal, that would be amazing. It's super, you know, futuristic black mirror type of thing. But if you could get a little like roving tag that could like put it on the back and then it like moves up to the head and then it moves down to the tail and moves around the body. Um, there are a lot of different things that, uh, you know, different variables that we can't really get from, from the back of the animal. So like heart rate is one thing uh, where we've developed these new tags where you can actually measure heart rate. So the, basically what it is, it has two little electrodes in two of the four suction cups. And so it can, it can measure the, the, the voltage drop between even that small of an area and it can use that to determine the heart rate. So, you know, we, I think we've deployed that maybe a dozen times at this point. And I think like one deployment actually worked to get heart rate. And the reason was we put it on the back, but then it slipped all the way down underneath the left, um, the left like arm pectoral fin mm -hmm. and just stuck there. And so that's pretty much where you need that electrode to be to measure heart rate. So if we could make a tag that actually could do that on command that you could sort of put it up there and it knew enough to sort of move down, that would be amazing. That would get us a lot more data, you know, heart rate, which gets you physiology, which gets you energetics, which is big for conservation conversion and, you know, rates, again, things like that. Exactly. exactly. I, I actually, so, I had a couple of ideas. Um, it would be cool. Um, one to address kind of the GPS thing to reach out and work with Starlink 
Um, so you had constant, you know, positioning that was accurate. I mean, they're, they're putting up more satellites than I think people know what to do with. So having a direct connection to, uh, a, you know, a satellite cluster that's directly over, you know, the islands would, would be amazing. And I think it would help. Um, and then secondary, um, and I don't know if this has ever been thought of, and this might be, you know, black Mary sci-fi kind of what you thought about, but being able to test, um, electrical impulses, um, from the brain, um, just to see what kind of data mapping you could do from there, from the start. I mean, if you had a tag, you know, that had, you know, four small fluctuating motors within the suction cups that could pull the suction cup off and allow it to slip, um, and move based on, you know, different diving scenarios. I mean, you think about it, like if you get accelerometer data where the whale is climbing, you could automatically program those little motors in the suction cups to release and move down the whale, um, and, you know, re-engage as it, you know, were, it, it would be incredibly complex, but, you know, a way to do it. If you had motors that would, you know, push up and down to be able to release, you could do the same thing, you know, as the whale was diving, catch that accelerometer data, suction cups pull up, you know, whether partially or whatever it may be. So it keeps in contact with the whale and then re-engage, um, after a, a certain depth change or um, a certain metric. And then if you were to get close enough to the front of the whale or towards the, the head of the whale where the brain is located, be able to pick up those electrical impulses um, and start to compare them with the, with the audio um, and visual data to see like, okay, you know, what, what, um, what electric electric synapses are moving through um, this animal as it's going to eat or as it's going to breach or things like that. So that's, that's where my mind had went, you know, on innovation from the science side is what, what could we use? And then, you know, to further that and really go black mirror, if you really start to understand, you know, how the, the whale's brain function works, could you reverse engineer that and send electrical impulses into the animal and almost control the animals, um, movements and that's super black mirror. But I mean, Every, all anything is, is really, you know, um, back and forth electrical currents, you know, for impulse movements. I mean, that's how our muscles are controlled, you know, very simply put, but, um, just crazy shit like that, I think is what spurs innovation kind of in the future. I, I, um, I like the idea of remote controlled whales that we can use to fight illegal fishermen. Yep. <laughs> Jeez, I like you that. just imagine I like that. Basically like Avatar 2. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's got a headset uh, on, <laughs> just sending electrical impulses. You just get uh, flipper smacked. Bow! Right. <laughs> there, um, it's, it's mentioning uh, brainwaves. There, there actually has been some research done um, using biologging, but essentially in, in seals, so elephant seals, uh, there's a... a uh, postdoc at Scripps, uh, her name is uh, Dr. Uh, Jessica Kendall Barr. And so for her PhD work, she did a lot of really, really cool stuff where they had a little, she developed a little head cap for an elephant seal that could measure brain waves. And that, so they would put that on and then it would put a normal little tag on and then the animal would go out into the water. And what she was interested in measuring was uh, sleep patterns. So when do the animals sleep and what does that even look like? So she could actually measure the brain waves and see when the animal was in REM sleep. And then she could compare that to what the animal's doing. So they basically do this little like falling leaf pattern where they just like spiral down while they're asleep and then they wake up and come back up. Um, 
Those are some ugly animals, by the way. I, I love all animals, but goodness gracious, those things are ugly, ugly, ugly. And seeing them on the beach, they're they're all fighting with each other and trying to mate with each other. And the little babies, the little sausages are just like sitting there getting getting pummeled and getting fallen on. And yeah, it's that's yeah. One of my um, one of my lab mates during my master's uh, was doing some work on elephant seals. And so they got to go out to Año Nuevo uh, Beach in California. And apparently if you were working with the mom, let's say, and you had a little baby there, uh, it was someone's job to just sit on the pup and make sure that it didn't move away. So someone would just sit there on the pup, make sure it didn't move, and then they could all work with mom. But they're, yeah, the little pup would be screaming and, and just like vocalizing and going crazy. And they're just, they're very weird animals. What did you do today at work? Oh, I sat on a little turd seal. I pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, um, we've been working with the Hawaiian monk seals out here too, trying to put tags on them. And even those little guys, they're just, the babies are so goofy looking. They're just, they're just little, little sausages. We call them little shark sausages. Um, <laughs> they're just really weird, but really cute too. So <laughs> Well, speaking of Hawaii, I think uh, that's a good transition point. Um, we, we know you, you didn't spend, you know, your entire career so far in Hawaii. So uh, tell us a little bit more about kind of the past, where you are from, you know, originally and your, your life and experience to get to where you are now, because I would say you're kind of at the peak where most people would want to be in your profession. Yeah. Um, so so I, I definitely did not start out wanting to be a researcher or, you know, doing any kind of research. Um, to my mind, growing up research was, you know, sitting in a, in a wet lab with a pipette. And I remember I did that in chemistry class and couldn't follow a single thing that they were trying to explain to me. And just, it was not my thing. Um, but I always really liked animals. So growing up, I was like, Oh, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be a vet. I want to be a vet. And so I wanted to be a vet all the way up through, I think it was starting my junior year of, uh, of undergrad. And so that year I had a sort of very, um, serendipitous, uh, you know, encounter with one of my, uh, professors that I had, had had my freshman year. And I had taken her course, it was, it was called vertebrate function, you know, vertebrate function and anatomy or vertebrate functional anatomy. Um, and, you know, I, I had really liked the course, it was really cool, but I kind of just, you know, I was a little freshman, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I kind of sat in the back and, and I, I think I probably fell asleep through half the lectures. I just like, you know, tried to be engaged, but I was doing too much that year and just like, you know, so I, I didn't really think that she would have known who I was. Um, or really remember me, but I was walking through a parking lot and, and she was walking next to me, Dr. Dr. Uh, Betty McGuire. And, you know, she turned to me at one point and goes, Oh, Hey, well, how's it going? <laughs> I kind of was taken aback. I was like, Oh, how, how do you, how do you remember me? Like, how do you, how do you know? You know? And she's like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm starting up a, a research program. If, if you're at all interested and, you know, trying out research, doing anything like that. I was like, oh, you know, I, I don't really know what that means, but sure, why not? Sounds great. So I went and talked to her and she's like, oh, you know, we're going to go. My, my goal is to go to the local dog shelters. And what I really want to know is sort of hormone 
um, composition, things like that. Uh, basically, urinary behavior of dogs, domestic dogs, right? So the goal is let's go to the local shelters and walk the dogs. And whenever the dog pees, we can, t- you know, score some behavior about that, that urinary event. And I was like, that sounds kind of crazy, but also really fun because <laughs> I get to just go to the dog shelters and walk the dogs. Great. Um, so, so we did that for about two, two and a half years, I think, where we would go, I, I think we probably walked over 200 dogs from the local shelters. Um, and we would just, you know, one person would have the leash and they'd be walking the dog. The other person would have a clipboard and a little pen. And every time the dog peed, if it lifted its leg, you would score which leg it lifted and which position it used or which posture it used. Um, and you know, different aspects, how many times the dog peed in a walk, uh, did it poop? And if it pooped, did it ground scratch after it pooped? And if it ground scratched, which leg did it use? So all of these different <laughs> aspects of dog urinary behavior, um, which, you know, I would, I would talk to my friends who were also, you know, if, if they had gotten into doing little research projects too, they'd be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm studying, you know, the, the, the wetlands and like frogs in the wetlands, or I'm studying birds and, it's, you know, flying behavior of birds. And I'm like, oh, I'm studying peeing behavior in dogs. <laughs> That's kind of goofy, but I love it. So that was my first research project and it was amazing. I loved it. It was so fun. And, um, while I was doing that, I, um, had, I had the opportunity to TA her course, Dr. McGuire's course. And one of the other TAs, one of the grad students, um, she was about to, uh, start up a, a little research project of her own with, um, another, uh, professor who I had taken a course with, his name was Dr. Frank Fish, and he studied locomotion in anything that swims, um, everything from perfect name, by the way, whales. Yeah. He has the perfect name for it. Um, so she was starting up this, this project, looking at the, um, escape behavior of ducks, these, these big marine ducks called eider ducks, common eider ducks. And so essentially what they had done is they had gone out to a, a little, uh, marine station off the coast of New Hampshire called Shoals Marine Lab. And they had gone out on a small little Zodiac boat and they had uh, Stacy, uh, Dr. Stacy Farina was the, the uh, grad student at the time, now a, a professor at Howard University. Um, she was on the, the front of the boat with a high-speed camera and Frank was driving the boat and they would find a big flock of eider ducks and they would zoom at the eider ducks and try to sort of get them to escape. And so as they would escape away from the boat, they would take high speed video of them escaping because these are essentially really big, fat, heavy ducks that can't really fly um, or they can't fly very well. So if they're if they're startled, they they don't just fly away and sometimes they'll sort of sink underwater, but a lot of times they'll just run along the surface. So we were interested in what they're how that works. So she had all this data and she's like, oh, you know, I need a grad student to, or I, I, an undergrad to or someone to um, help me analyze this. And I was like, well, I'm already doing one research project and that's fun. So why don't I do another one? So, so I got into working on that one as well. Um, so, you know, I would spend two days a week going to the shelters and walking the dogs. And then I would come back and sit in, in a room for a few hours, looking at videos of ducks and it was great. And so that was sort of my junior and senior year of, of undergrad. Um, 
So I really, really enjoyed that. That was really fun. And so when I graduated, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I had really enjoyed research, but I didn't really have a background or know, you know, do I want to do grad school? How do I even apply to grad school? Like what's, what's the whole process here? Yeah. No one tells you that by the way, like there, if you want to continue your education, everyone's just like, Oh, congrats. You graduated from, you know, your undergraduate degree. If you want anything else, you're on your own. Yeah, pretty much. And yeah, so I, I was sort of talking to people a little bit, like I was talking to uh, Dr. Fish a little bit. I was like, I don't really know what I want to do, you know, where I want to go. And he's like, well, if you want, you could come down to Pennsylvania to uh, Westchester University of Pennsylvania. Um, and you could be a, a master student here. You could be my master student. I was like, oh, I, I like research. Research has been fun so far. I'll just keep doing this. I'll just, you know, stay in school forever and, and do research. Um, so, so I, I did that. So I, so I followed him down to uh, Pennsylvania and I joined his lab. And so he was looking at uh, the swimming behavior of dolphins. So one of the things we would do is we would go to the aquariums. So it was mainly the national aquarium in Baltimore. Um, at the time they, they had, I think it was maybe three or four dolphins that they, they had in, in captivity there. Um, and we would set up, cameras, we'd set up high speed cameras and sort of like a little 3d array of cameras. And we would film the dolphins as they were just swimming past the, the glass. And so we had, you know, this data of animals swimming. And so we were kind of analyzing that and looking at the motion and, and how that relates again, to sort of energetics and things like that. But, um, we also had some anatomical, uh, pieces from, uh, stranded animals that had, that had died. So we had, uh, some tails from different dolphin species. And so I was looking at that one day, uh, sort of early on in my master's, I was like, Oh, you know, there's, there's a sort of interesting structure in the tail, um, with this, the, you know, this anatomy that they don't really have any bones leading out into the, the flukes, those little sections that go off from the, the middle of the tail. Um, but it's still really rigid and they can, you know, flap them up and down and really get some thrust out of it. So, I took that on as my master's project, really kind of digging into the anatomy of that. So I was, you know, looking at swimming and dolphins, but also really looking at kind of the anatomy and, and morphology and structure and things like that. And that was all really fun. And so that was a two-year program. And when I was finishing that up, I was like, okay, I've liked grad school so far. Why don't I just keep doing this again? I'll just stay in school forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I applied to a few different grad school programs, um, all in completely different uh, sort of fields, different animals. Um, the The only real defining feature was that it was uh, sort of biomechanics, right? Like the the mechanisms and and movements of of life of, of living animals. Um, so I think one of them was looking at the swimming behavior of fish. One of them would have been looking at the uh, movement behavior of either maybe turtles or, um, you know, s birds. Um, one of them was looking at the movement behavior of spiders, which I am deathly afraid of spiders. And this was a super cool lab. Uh, they do really awesome research, but 
they have a, a room with 100 bird eating spiders. What? That, that are like the size of a dinner plate. And like the like ones they have in like, Australia. Like grow, yeah. They're like growing them, you know, getting, oh, hell getting them no. ready to study. Hell no. And I mean, I remember I went and visited and, you know, they were kind of showing me the little room and I remember walking in and going, uh, uh-uh, nope, I don't think I can do this. And the professor, you know, was really like super excited, ta- you know, talking to me about, oh, like all the different research we can do with these spiders. And, you know, she was telling me that, oh, you know, we, we, um, we had one in, in the tank the other day. And apparently these spiders can swim along the surface of the water. So they're interested in studying that. But, you know, swimming spiders is just great. I love that concept. That sounds like a nightmare. And yeah. And, and she's like, oh, and, you know, one of the spiders kind of like flicked its, you know, flicked itself a little bit. And then, and then I, I, I realized that I had some hives breaking down on the side of my face. Apparently the spider had like flicked some little hairs onto her and that's what they do. And then it causes hives just terrible. <laughs> so that was, uh, would have been a super cool research project to look at. And it's biomechanically, it's really interesting because they have eight legs and like what happens, you know, cause these, these animals, these spiders can regrow legs. So if one of the legs is, is removed in some way, then how does the animal compensate? And then when it grows back, what does it do? Um, so there's a lot of cool, like neural things you can do with that and, and just mechanics, but it's a hundred bird eating spiders in a room and I can't be there. So that was a cool one uh, that I just could not uh, take that opportunity. What the actual fuck? <laughs> so that was, yeah. that was, that was, that was a lot. You got to know your limits. That is very, very far past. <laughs> I think that would push yeah. a lot of people's limits. <laughs> yeah. Snakes and spiders. No, sir. Snakes. I, I'd be even fine with snakes. It's just man, oh. spiders and, ugh. but I'll take spiders over snakes any day. I'm sorry. You ain't got no arms and legs and you're still moving fast as fuck. No, thank you. We, uh, we've, we've had some spiders here. Uh, we haven't had any snakes yet, but we had a spider outside that was probably that big. Just, you know, my, my partner, she was, you know, sitting out on the back porch and it's covered. And all of a sudden you look up and there's like this, this big spider, like coming down from the ceiling right over her head. I'm like, uh, uh-uh, this is nope. Charlotte. Come don't to say this. salutations. Don't love it. Um, See, if you if yeah. you can kill it with a flip-flop or a chunkla, we're, we're good. You can't that do that a little with a snake. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That is true. You got to like pick them up by the tail and throw them or something. Yeah. Not even that. Nope. It's, you just walk the other way. If it's in your house, you burn the house down. Yeah, just throw the house away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we whole, whole house. Goodbye. Yeah. I think Hawaii actually doesn't have any snakes. That, I was I was going to say that earlier. I don't think they do, um, and that's one of the things that they're really cautious about. Is any yep. um, it's it's why a lot of pets go through quarantine uh, when they're brought from the mainland is because they're trying to prevent certain species from being able to populate on the island, and especially snakes too. Like I couldn't imagine what snakes would do to um, the the Hawaiian um, ecosystems. Like there's just so many things that seem like they would be vulnerable to snakes, and people would freak out. Like, could you imagine? snakes in Honolulu. Like that just sounds like the start of a horror movie. It would <laughs> definitely not be good, especially. Yeah. For the, the I, I think the seabirds are already um, feeling a lot of pressure from like the rat population and the cat population. There's, there's a lot of cats and I think a lot of uh, you know, feral wild cats living here now, little colonies. And I, I think that's not really 
and tons of chickens. But ton, the oh chicken, my, there's chickens everywhere. The chicken population would be wiped out if there were snakes. Yeah, there are so <laughs> many chickens. It's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, so no snakes, but we do have, what do we have? We have uh, spiders. We have cockroaches, a lot of cockroaches yeah. or, or palmetto bugs for whoever wants to make it sound less terrifying. Um, <laughs> A lot of cockroaches. We've been very fortunate. We haven't gotten any cockroaches inside of our house yet. We've been very diligent to make sure that that does not happen. Um, but then there's a lot of lizards too, little, little tiny lizards, which we think might be eating the cockroaches, but we have no evidence to support that. Go lizards. Team lizard over here. Everywhere. You'll, you'll see something kind of scurrying out of the corner of your eye and you're like, oh no, it's a cockroach. And you look and it's just a little lizard. You're like, eh, it's fine. It's kind of cute. You'll start tagging lizards. Right. <laughs> Little micro really tags. Tiny tag. Yeah. I think the um We were in the, sync. <laughs> the uh what is it? For for a tag, the um conventional wisdom is it needs to be less than five percent of the animal's body weight. So I think it would need to be literally like half a grain of rice that you put on that little <laughs> that little creature. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's need someone needs to end engineer that nanotechnology. Right. I'm sure, I'm right. sure it's out they, there for like mice and stuff. Yeah. They, they have them for birds. They have really, really, really tiny tags that you can put on bird, like, like, you know, sparrows, like little birds hmm. that you can get these tiny little tags that can, that can get their motion and all kinds of stuff. It's really cool. What a crazy world we live in. You can, you put one on a spider. See where that goes. Nope. Someone uh, else can do that. that either. So that's, that's my whole thing. It's like, if someone wants to do that, that sounds great. If they like spiders, just not going to be worth what I want to do. The only way you'll convince me to ever do something like that is if I knew at the end of the day, I was going to become Spider-Man. That yeah, that's fair. It. That's fair. Even still, it's like, you gotta, you gotta bite me with a spider to let that happen. Uh, that's why I look at opportunity cost. You know, if, if I get cool powers <laughs> and if I get like so mad, I could go yeet a car and, and it that just takes one it. bite. Then, okay. Yeah, it's worth it. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I did not take that job. Uh, I, I, that did not appeal to me. Um, <laughs> but luckily, uh, the last place I applied to was uh, Stanford, which at the time I was like, it's Stan- like, I'm not going to get into, you know, I'll apply. It seems fun. It seems like relevant. Um, and the lab was looking at using these biologging tags to study large whales. So everything from uh, minke whales up to blue whales. So including humpback, fin, say, broodies, whatever, you know, um, whatever you can think of. So at this point, were you sad to leave, um, you know, the dog world? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I hadn't really, so I'd been in the dog world um, during undergrad and I actually, (laughs) For my, when I was in Pennsylvania for my master's, um, my advisor there, Dr. Fish, you know, he was interested in swimming, but he was also interested in just like biomechanics in general and movement and stuff like that. So he's like, oh, um, let's go to the Pennsylvania dog show. Uh, the, the, is it the AKC or the Yukonuba one? I don't remember which one it is, but they have like a big dog show in Eastern Pennsylvania every year. It's like the Westminster. Oh no, that's in New York. That's yeah, the one in New I, York. Is that the one in New York? Yeah. I don't, the one on I don't like Animal exactly Planet. Yep. But th- this one is like on TV. Like oh, they they have that here too. There's like a big a big room in the back that's like the showroom. Um, hmm. 
Is that like where the dogs do like the long jumps and the high jumps and the obstacle courses and stuff? No, they didn't really have obstacle courses at this one. It was more just like who has the prettiest, best, best version, best specimen of the, of the breed type of thing. Pedigree. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it was kind of interesting because uh, Frank was interested in uh, what is the weight distribution in dogs of different sizes. So do large dogs, you know, you kind of have like uh, Spike from Looney Tunes, who, who's like all upper body and has like a tiny, tiny little back end, you know, this big collar. And, you know, then you have little dogs where it's like maybe a little more even. And so what we did is we went to this, you know, big convention center where there was hundreds of dogs and all of their owners. And we would walk up to people with two scales and put the scales down and be like, hi, could you do you want to help us with this research project? Could you have your dog stand on these scales? So like, what's, what's the weight on the front end? What's the weight on the back end versus the the dog's complete weight. So we went there for, I think maybe two years, two, three years. So that was really fun. We got to just hang out with a bunch of dogs again. Um, so that was kind of the last time I've been in the dog world, but it was, it was cool. It, it was, you know, a little sad to leave, but the, the Marine world is, very fun. Very interesting. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot to be done there. And it's just, it's, it's so unexplored in so many ways. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's really difficult to work in the Marine environment in so many cases. Um, like it's, you know, it can be hard to just even get out on the water to see things, um, that it, it feels really cool when you can go out and like actually get some really cool data about an animal that spends, you know, 99% of its life, either underwater or a hundred miles offshore or something like that. Yeah. It's definitely a privilege. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. So and it's almost like a luck thing. You almost got to just be lucky and have, have a good wind behind you. Exactly. That's perfect. Uh, segue into our next little topic here of, uh, wild stories. And when it comes to going out on the water and, and, <laughs> you know, creating these experiences and, and, um, searching for these animals. What are some of the wild experiences that you've encountered? Um, not only with your team, but, you know, maybe as an undergrad or just the whole gamut, what's some, what's some interesting stuff that's happened out there. And don't tell me you have a list next to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's, oh, there's, there's, there are a lot. Um, especially with the, with the tagging, because, you have to put the tags out, which can be kind of crazy. And then you have to get the tag back, which without fail is like five times crazier. Um, what receiving, like going and re- retrieving the tags, going and actually crazy. recovering the tags. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's way crazier. Um, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm at least in the lab here, I'm one of the, you know, people who knows how to do that the best, which means, when there's a really crazy tag recovery that needs to happen, I'm usually the one that's like, Will, go out on the boat, you do this. <laughs> and I'm there like, you know, 60 miles offshore in like in a, you know, in a 10 storm. foot swell yeah. with, with my little antenna trying to like find sitting out in the ocean. You're looking for like a little thing. Exactly, exactly. So we, yeah, we have some crazy ones there. So, I mean, just going through the ones we've had in Hawaii, we had, uh, one where I had to fly over from Maui to, uh, to Molokai and, um, get on a boat with a, with a fisherman over there. 
That's the uninhabited island, right? Or a very low local inhabitants only? I think, uh, no. Well, it's, it's, I think there's maybe like 7,000 people living there. Um, it's, it's not very inhabited, but it's, um, definitely more local. Uh, I think it's the, uh, it's the island that for a, a long time in, in, uh, history, I think they had a, a leper colony, um, living there on the island, which I think was, you know, a little bit of a kind of a colonial relic. Hmm. That's pretty wild. <laughs> a leper colony, like of leprechauns. <laughs> yeah. <Crazy>. Yes. <laughs> That's wild. I didn't even know this that. island's <laughs> magically delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah but so that's we I, I had to fly over there and get on a boat with a fisherman who we had uh, just met with a, a little plastic bag filled with i think it was fifteen hundred dollars in cash that i was supposed to give him um to to pay for our journey and then we uh we we got out to where the tag was supposed to be and he informed me that yes that is where the tag is because this is where my friend found it this morning I was like, wait, your, your friend found the tag. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but he was going to go up fishing. So I told him just put it back in the water and we'll be out here later. It's like, wait, so you already had the tag and you, so we're out here recovering <laughs> oh, 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 no. this tag. Okay, <laughs> cool. It sounds like some um, sort of then, Facebook marketplace scam. <laughs> it, 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 it was like, eh, you know, close. Um, and then walking we, around we with a bag fishing. of cash. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, uh, we, we went fishing, uh, in the afternoon there. Um, so I helped him fish, which yeah, growing up, I never really fished very much, but here I am like slinging mahi off a hook into a little, you know, bin on the boat and we would swell and everything. And, you know, it's getting a little bit dark and I've already missed my first flight and my second flight and maybe the last flight of the evening. Cause we might not get back in time and we did not get back in time. <laughs> so that was a, that was a fun day. Um, and then we, I mean, we've, we had a, a tag wash up on Lanai. So that's the Island that is owned 99% by Larry Ellison from, uh, Oracle. Um, so we had a tag wash up on the beach. So we had to go out over on the ferry, me and one of my lab mates. And we drove across the island, went down to the beach, found the tag in like 10 minutes. It was like the easiest to, you know recovery ever, which meant that we just had the whole rest of the day to hang out at the Four Seasons Beach, which was great. So that was like... That sounds horrible. What a horrible day of work. That was the second recovery from that same field season. So I was like, you know what? I deserve this. I'm going to sit on the beach all day. Um, <laughs> We had one uh, that shot 60 miles offshore off Lanai. So we had to get on a, on a big whale watching boat. And, and basically, I think we found the tag at like 5.30 p.m. as it was getting dark. And so we had to turn around, come back again about 60 miles back to Lanai. And I think that took us until 10.30 p.m. Or no, 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 Oof. 11, 12 Something like that. It was like six or seven hour ride back, just like in the dark, bombing up and down through these waves that you really can't see. And the um, the headlights, I think, on the boat weren't really working properly. And so we just didn't really have any light out there. And so we're just kind of going blind through these waves. And the captain was like, oh, you know, it's fine. I was in the Navy 
And, you know, typically when you're driving boats in the Navy, you don't have any of your lights on anyway. Like, oh, well, why is that? He's like, well, you don't really want to give away your position. Like, okay, so I guess it's good that you're the one driving the boat right now while we're like 50 miles offshore in the middle of the pitch black. This is cool. This is great. And we're just sitting there like trying not to get seasick, you know, sort of rocking back and forth on this giant boat that's swelling. And all you can see is like a little bit of stars off the horizon to sort of orient yourself. Meanwhile, Captain's got like a really smoked cigar right. like down to his nose. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this exactly. is just Tuesday night. <laughs> this is normal. Um, so that was that was a good one. We had one, uh, the first tag we put on a false killer whale. It popped off and floated 30 miles north of Oahu, which meant that I had to uh, get on a 70-foot fishing yacht charter um, at about that was 5 in the morning out of... Honolulu and we had to go from Honolulu all the way around the island and then all the way north 30 miles north to get the tag so we left at 5 30 in the morning got to the tag at like 1 30 in the afternoon and then we had to come back and I think we got back to Honolulu at 12 30 in the morning so I think it was like a 19 hour trip there and back to get that one tag so the recoveries can be kind of wild especially in Hawaii because you just the weather is. Do you have to dive in the water for them or no. do you have like a retrieval device? You just can like, that's another big ass <laughs> stick. It's a bigger stick or a net. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the tag will float at the surface and there's two little antenna floating out. So there's, there's one that's a, a satellite antenna, which basically gets us like a rough position. And then we have a radio where we have this little like, we call it a Yagi and it's like this little radio antenna that you're sitting there like trying to listen and there's like wind and you're trying to figure out where it is and it can, you can pinpoint the direction. And so that'll get you in visual range so you can actually see the tag and it's sitting there floating at the surface. And so you just have to somehow get it out of the water. Um, so hopefully you have a little net on board that you can use to scoop it. But if you don't, sometimes you got to just, you don't get in the water, but you got to like reach for it a little bit yeah. more than maybe you'd want to, but do you ever get in the water um, and do a lot of in-water work, especially with the, the larger animals? I mean, I would assume not, but... Not really. No, no. Um, I think partially just sort of from a from like a permitting standpoint, it's, you know, you, you just... We are, we are permitted to do very particular things around these animals. Mm-hmm. Um, we're permitted to do our tagging and, and, you know, flying a drone over the animal and being in close proximity for photo ID and things like that. But, um, yeah, we're, we're not permitted for anything in water. So we typically, and, and also it's, you know, we're so busy trying to get these tags on and then get them back that as cool as it would be to be in the water with the animals, we just, it, it's, it's almost not even on our, on our minds. Yeah. To, to I, I've heard different answers to that question. Some it's a yeah. respect thing. Some it's a just, we don't have it on, you know, like you said, it's not on our minds. Some are just like, hell yeah. no. You think I'm getting in the water with a, you know, well, uh, 80 foot blue whale. That's, that's definitely it too. That's it probably more so for me personally. Um, I, you know, the thought of being in the water with, a even a 50 foot animal that can move around me very easily. And I'm just like, like treading water, trying to stay alive. It, you know, there's, there's a little bit of uh what is it? Thalassophobia about that yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we, we typically stay in the boat, um, but there, what is it up, up in Alaska? So 
sort of the other side of a lot of our field work is tagging animals up in Alaska. And so uh, what we'll be doing up there is tagging animals that are uh, bubble net feeding. So bubble net feeding is basically when a, it's only done by humpback whales, as far as we know, and they'll use bubbles to create a ring or multiple rings around their prey to sort of consolidate them together. And then they come up in the middle and either they're feeding by themselves or they're going to feed in a big group. And when they're in the big group like that, that's typically when you see those like really spectacular images in nature documentaries where like 15 animals come to the surface. Um, so there was, there was one year we were up there trying to tag, uh, animals in a group like that. So as many as we could find. And so what you have to do is you sort of, you sort of follow along after the animals. So they'll all come up to the surface and then they kind of mill around for a little bit and then they go back down. And then a few minutes later, they'll come up again. Typically they're going to be kind of in a line and you know that they're coming up because there's a feeding call that they do. They make this really kind of high pitched and they do that for a minute or two. So you're saying you speak whale. Yes, exactly. In this one instance, yes. Um, Dinner bell. <laughs> and so, so you can kind of listen for that. And if you can hear it, you're like, oh, okay, they're, they're pretty close by. And so we were, you know, one day we were out there and we're, we're sort of following along, following along. And, and then we try to get ahead of one of the groups a little bit. And so we're, we're sitting there in the boat and the, the, you know, the boat, the hull is, you know, aluminum. So it'll sort of transmit some of the sound up. So even if the animal's farther away, you'll still kind of hear that sound, that, uh, that vocal cue. And so we, we start to hear it and we're like, okay, you know, they're, they're, they're coming up somewhere nearby, you know, it'll be pretty close. And then we start to hear it and it's louder, and louder, and louder, and louder. And we're like, okay, oh, okay. They're going to be really close. Oh boy. And then at the very end, they sort of pitch down. So it goes, and then they all break the surface. So we start to hear that and we're like, okay, they're going to be really close. And then we start to see bubbles form around the boat. <laughs> and, and we're sitting there, we're like, oh no. <laughs> and then like 10 mouths just come right out of the surface, like around the boat. And I mean, they, they know we're there, so they know not to hit the boat. Like they're, they're very conscious of their bodies and sort of what's around them. But, you know, we just happened to be where their food was. So they were just like, yeah, we're going to we're going to keep going. And so there's we, we got it on a GoPro video. We have two different GoPro video perspectives. We have one from uh, Lars Bider, my uh, my current boss, my PI here in the, the, the Merp lab. Um, and he was out on the little pulpit, which is like a little graded floor, but it's out off the edge. So you can kind of get a little mm -hmm. more uh, leverage for tagging. So he's up there with a little head GoPro mount looking straight down, like into the mouth of these whales. Are we allowed to use this footage to overlay it over the <laughs> I don't story? know if we can. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be so cool to show. I, <laughs> and then we have, um, we have a GoPro mounted on the back of the boat. That's just kind of like looking at, looking forward at everything that's happening. And so um, Andy Zabo is the, um, the head of Alaska whale foundation. So he's the one up there that we've been collaborating with. And so he's driving the boat and then there's me and one of the interns and the whales all start to come up. And there's a moment when I thought I was about to die. And so I looked back at the camera to make sure that it was running. And so my face is just like, <gasps> as like 10 whales are coming out of the surface. And so it just, it, that was like, 
absolutely the closest I've ever, I've ever gotten to these animals. And it was, that's it crazy. Was terrifying, but very, very cool. Um, and again, they know you're there. So it's not like they're, they're oblivious or they're going to hit the boat or anything like that, but they're just like, they are like three feet from you. And it's just this mouth that's as big as the boat. Um, so that was, yeah, that, that was, that was pretty cool. We, you know, weren't in the water, but you know, pretty close to them. Yeah. So we've, we've had a lot of kind of crazy and, and then, you know, there's just us being out there, you know, things happen. So there was one time when we, you know, we sort of had to stay out because the field station that we were staying at was like 50 miles away. And so we didn't want to have to go all the way back and then come back out the next day. So we just stayed at at a, on a little dock, we like camped on a little dock, uh, me and, and Lars. Um, and we were just going to like grab the tag the next morning and bring it back. And Andy was like, Oh, you know, the, the docks, like it's a good little dock, you know, it's been there for a while. It'll be fine. Um, so Lars and I get around and we look at the dock and we realize that it's like half an inch above the waterline. And so if you step on the dock, it just like sinks under the waterline a little bit. And so that's where we camped for the night. So there's things like that. And then, you know, the engine broke one time when we were 40, 50 miles away from home. We had to get towed by a big boat back Oof. to back to like another little town that was not where we were staying and then had to get towed back the next morning. And so that's the worst breaking down SD. Yeah, that was. And, and we were like right next to shore. So we were like going into shore and the island that we were next to is the island with, I think, the highest density of brown bears in the world so we're like well we don't really want to be like stuck on the shore with the bears for the next six hours <laughs> uh yeah so just you know not even whale related but just like things that happen when you're out there so it's exactly why we started this show to be able to tell those stories even though they might not uh night might not be specific to the animals that each individual is working with um, but there's conservation stories that are all interconnecting that are, that are pretty damn crazy at the end of the day. Especially when you have hundreds of deployment tag deployments, you know, every single, every single deployment is an adventure. I'm sure. And I'm, I'm also sure you're probably going to remember some stories that you didn't think of on the show afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. Absolutely. We'll come back for part two later on. <laughs> Sounds good. But no, it's really good to get insight into, you know, the people behind these types of conservation efforts and really try to find um, your voice. What we try to do here at Wildscape is really just pass you the mic and say, hey, you know, you're human. You got all these things going on. You're doing really cool things. Kind of just let us let us take a peek into that life and let you tell that story. So thank you for sharing, you know, all of that. There's a, there's a very interesting journey to be where you are now, which is a great uh jumping off point to, you know, the future, what does the future look like for Will and, um, your organization and, you know, the whales that you study? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So I'm, I'm, uh, I think just finishing up my first uh, year here in Hawaii. And so I'm, I'm here for at least, uh, two more years. So, you know, we've sort of started this process of, of, you know, bringing in this tag data and really getting it ready for analysis and, and use. Um, so we're going to sort of keep, keep going on that. Um, so we've got a few different uh, 
you know, papers and, and things like that in the works. And, you know, um, a big part of that is, is training, uh, people, not just in the, the MERP lab, but, you know, within Hawaii more generally and sort of how to use this, this data. So that's, that's a big reason that, that I'm here, sort of what I'm being funded to do, uh, is, is, uh, you know, sort of the idea of building capacity in, with these tags in, in Hawaii. Um, but then the lab more broadly, uh, you know, there's a lot of work that is sort of starting to come out now, right? So the, you know, I think that we have, we have a few grad students at the moment who are, you know, maybe in their fourth, fourth and fifth, maybe sixth years. So they're, they're sort of starting to really, you know, get some really cool results and starting to sort of finish up some of their, um, analyses and, and get that out. So there's a lot to do with, um, uh, droning, you know, drone, you know, UAV drone work. So um, there was a paper that just came out by one of the grad students, uh, Fabian Vivier. Um, and so he was looking at the age structure, um, the, the, the different age classes within a group of dolphins. So, um, you know, different things you can do with, with drones. So there's a lot with drones, a lot with tags, um, sort of getting into the, the, the interplay between those two different methodologies, um, a lot with um, sort of surveying, you know, population surveys, things like that, that, that like Claire was, was talking to you guys about. Um, so really kind of trying to meld all of these different um, methodologies together and really get a more sort of holistic sense for what these animals are doing uh, what's the health of individual animals, populations, um, things like that. So that's really sort of the, the continuing mission of the, of the MMRP, uh, lab. That's awesome. From an organizational standpoint, it's, it's really cool to see kind of a peek into the future and, and, and what you guys are working on. Yeah. And you know, you got your work cut out for you. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to do. Being a postdoc is, is really fun. Uh, it's definitely a lot different than being a grad student, just from the sense of, if you're a grad student, you're sort of working on one thing, more or less, you know, it, it can be, it can be multifaceted, multi-tendrilled, um, but it's still sort of like one thing. Whereas when you're a postdoc, it feels a little more like, okay, here's this little piece I'm working on. And here's this little project that's a little bit separate. And then here's something that I'm helping out this person. And you're sort of, you're, you're pulled in a few more directions and you have, you know, more agency in some ways and a little bit less in others, which is kind of fun. That's very unique. Yeah. Can you kind of touch base on some tips maybe for uh, the listeners out there, you know, after sharing your journey um, and, you know, explaining how you got to where you are, um, what are some good tips for people that may want to get into the space of conservation and maybe postdoc for that matter? You know, obviously my perspective will be, you know, very biased and sort of colored. Um, but I think if you're, if, if an opportunity presents itself uh, for something that you don't know if you would really enjoy it yet. I think um, something that's always been really helpful for me was sort of figuring out what I didn't want to do more than what I did want to do. Um, Cause trying to figure out what I did want to do. It's like, you know, there could be 15 different things here. I don't, I don't know exactly which one I want to pick, but if I would try something and, 
and didn't like it. And I'm like, okay, well, at least I know that I don't want to do this. You know, this is really cool. Someone will love to do it. It's just not really my thing. Um, and then I could sort of whittle down from there. So, you know, at the moment I love whales, whales are amazing. Um, but you know, if I went into another postdoc or, or, you know, got an academic position or, or industry position or something like that, that was not working with whales, but it was still sort of related, or I could use some of those same skills. I could definitely have fun with that. You know, I could, I could see being open to that. So I think, yeah, that, that definitely helped me sort of, you know, whittling down the list of things that you, that you really decide aren't for you. Yeah. Try it and see what you don't like. And once you know, you don't like it, you know, that, that makes that kind of pool to choose from even smaller and easier mm -hmm. to identify what you can do in the future. Right. Exactly. I definitely don't think that's biased. You've probably one of the first people on our show that have told it like that, which is a great perspective. Um, cause it's true. You know, you, you try it, you don't like it. And then you're like, well, now I know I didn't waste two years trying that. <laughs> or going full force for it. You know, you're kind of, uh, test driving it before you buy it kind of thing. Um, oh, and you learn something from every, um, everything that you do, you know, there's, there's a positive spin on it, you know, even if it was something that you didn't like, well, now, you know, Hey, I don't, I don't like this. I'm not going to do this anymore. And it it's one step closer to finding something that I do like and can do long-term. That's true. And on, on the off chance, you're always going to be building a network through the things that you try, through the stepping stones that you step on, you know, that's a new resource. That's a new connection in your network that could, you know, maybe come full circle in the future. And you could be, you know, business partners or end up collaborating or end up on a project together. There's just so many ways to open the doors um, in any space. So yeah, that, I definitely agree with that. Um so, Will, is, is there a way that, you know, our listeners and the audience can kind of get involved with MMRP? Uh, there are um, definitely, you know, a lot of data sets that we need help, <laughs> help with, yeah. um, you know, help processing, help looking through. Um, so, you know, if, if you're interested in, in anything that I've been talking about at all, uh, you can just contact me. Um, you can get my, my email address. Um, and what is that yeah, by the way? Can, uh, my email address is W Goff, So W G O U G H at Hawaii.edu. Um, have a Twitter page, which is at whale Goff. Um, so you can contact me there too. Um, yeah. So, so we have internships, uh, that, that, you know, we, I think during the summer, I mean, right now we might have five to 10 interns in the lab right now, helping us out with different projects. So, um, you know, I have someone helping me right now, uh, do a, a, a literature review on all of the papers that have ever been published using tag deployments to try to figure out, uh, how, you know, different, different aspects about those deployments. Um, wow. Claire has, uh, interns helping her, uh, go through the, uh, photo ID photos that she's taken from, from all of the surveying. Um, one of the grad students, uh, Martin Van Aswegen is, uh, working a lot with, with drone data. So he has people helping him go through drone data. 
we have all the tag data that we have people going through and, and helping us out with different aspects. So it's, it's really, you know, we have, we, we collect all this data and then it's way, 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 way more than, you know, a single person or even, or even 10 people can, can get through in a reasonable amount of time. So we, we definitely need help. <laughs> um, and then there's also, if you're at the uh, high school level, um, there's a, a program that two of the grad, uh, grad students have been running for the last two years. So it's, um, we're familiar with that. Yep. Smile. Smile yep. is the program. Uh, I, I think Claire might've been talking about it a little bit. So that's, that's a great way for, for people to get into it. And that's, you know, a, um, an avenue where you'll get to sort of experience hopefully a whole bunch of different uh, sort of styles of marine research. And it's not just like, you're going to sit in the lab with us and, you know, go through tag data. It's like, you're going to learn about tagging, about droning, about surveying. You're going to go out and do a survey. You're going to, you know, maybe go and get to meet, uh, you know, people from NOAA. You're going to meet people from, you know, Dolphin Quest. And and I think they might even be able to. Maybe even get next you in year the water. you'll meet people from Wildscape. There you wink, go. Wink, wink. That'd be great. That'd be wonderful. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, that, that program, you know, has been going for the last two years and that's a, that's a really, really good way for, uh, for people to get involved. Definitely. Yeah. That, that program is phenomenal from what we've seen um, and something that we really appreciate. And, you know, that's essentially why we do this segment at the end of every show is, you know, for people who are interested in becoming a part of programs or just learning more that they have a, a way to do so. And a program that's built specifically you know, for high schoolers who, you know, let's, let's be honest, most high school educations, um, aren't very well, you know, built towards a career in marine biology or educating people on how to even get to that point. Um, so having a purpose built program from the people that work in it every day is fantastic. Definitely. Definitely. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to uh, wrap the episode. Um, we appreciate your time, Will. Um, this this was a great one. Um, and we're looking forward to um, putting out there and everyone giving it a listen. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Sweet. Thanks, Will. We'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Wild and Unprotected podcast, brought to you by Wildscape Productions. Follow us on social media at Wildscape Productions. For more information on our documentary series, Shoreline Stories, visit wildscapeproduction.com. Stay tuned for our future episodes as we have so much more in store for Wild and Unprotected.